We discuss the legacy of NFL films and ask whether it's really all that different from today's NFL media. Today on... The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh, yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. Welcome, or welcome back. I'm Jonathan Bollinger. If you didn't happen to listen to our teaser trailer episode for this new season, then I just want to briefly explain how this season is going to be a little bit different from uh, what Inside the Box, the TV history podcast, has been in the past. Don't worry, it's not going to be too terribly different, but really it's going to be a little bit more focused this season in the sense that it's going to be a limited episode season, and that focus is going to be about exploring concepts and ideas through the disciplines of history and collective memory, but doing that in a fun and, well, we hope fun and interactive way through some pop culture examples. What we're also going to be doing is a lot more interviews this season, rather, Uh, than we have in the past. So listeners uh, to our older episodes always seem to enjoy when we had guests on, so uh, we're hoping that you'll enjoy uh, more of that. The other big change is that all the new episodes, uh, as you found this one obviously, are in the same old feed as always, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. However, all the old episodes, all 87 uh, episodes in what we are now, I guess, are calling the Archive, those are actually all now available on Patreon, okay? You can still go to www.tvhistorypod.com and see the same old episode pages for all those old episodes where you get the titles, the description of the episodes, all those supplementary photos and videos that, uh, video links rather, that we had put up there originally. That's all still there just like it always has, just like If you want to look at supplementary information for this episode that you're currently listening to, you can also still find that at www.tvhistorypod.com. The difference is is that those old episodes, the archive of the 87, if you actually want to listen to those, then we'd uh, just politely ask that you go on over to Patreon, which the link is also there on the website for Inside the Box, and uh, offer a a small donation. Um, Again, for those that did listen to the teaser uh, teaser episode, we're not doing this in any way, shape, or form as a way to be annoying or tick you guys off or in any way get rich, <laughs> but really just to cover the cost of you know hosting uh, for web you know website hosting for uh, upgrading some equipment like uh, like old microphones that sort of thing. Okay, so today you're going to find me in conversation with fellow academic Travis Vogan, who is out of the University of Iowa. And he's the author of quite a few books that focus on the history of certain sports uh, programming, okay? So, for example, he has written books uh, titled ESPN, The Making of a Sports Media Empire, ABC Sports, The Rise and Fall of Network Sports, among uh, quite a few others. But the book that we'll be discussing specifically today is a real favorite of mine, and it's called Keepers of the Flame, NFL Films, and the Rise of Sports Media. So, 
The reason for this is because NFL Films is so key, so important uh, to an understanding of sports uh, media and, and certainly sports programming and how we look at certain sports media, uh, our relationship to it. And really what this conversation gets into is how that relationship is sort of changing and sort of what NFL Films' original goals were, along with a lot of other uh, different ideas uh, throughout this conversation. So without any further ado, I just want to jump right into my conversation with Travis, and then after which, I'll come on back just myself, just to finish things out and remind you about a few things, okay? So without any further delay, let's uh, go right to my conversation with Travis. When we think about issues of history and memory, and the purpose of this season of the podcast is to really let everyone in on these issues of history and memory through pop culture. So here, we're going to talk about the NFL. And for folks of a certain generation, NFL films is so important to understanding, or how we were taught to think about, really, the NFL. And the two key personnel there are, of course, the Sables, Ed and his son, Steve. And where I want to start this conversation is what I found so interesting in your, your coverage, Travis, and you subsequently interviewed them in your book, is that they both feel so quintessentially of their generations. Ed as a sort of the early 20th century, where it was a job, a way to make money, to do a little better, and his son, the quintessential boomer. You know, he's sort of enjoying the fruits of the post-war victory, uh, enjoyed a college education, pursued his artistic interests, and then he sort of brought that flavor to what became NFL films. Is is my sort of characterization uh, sort of what you found in doing your research for this book? Yeah, I think I think that's a fair characterization. I mean, Ed Sable was a businessman, really. Um, he liked football. And he really liked making home movies. That was sort of his passion, his pastime. And so he was able to, he he was very prosperous. He worked for an overcoat uh, company and was able to retire early um, or at least kind of quit his job and, and take some time off. And in the course of that, he started making basically industrial films uh, for local companies because he had sort of perfected his um, skills as an amateur filmmaker with home movies he would create of, of his family on vacation and whatnot. Um, And he wound up turning that into a small um, business called Blair motion pictures, which was named for his daughter uh, Blair. Right. And so he liked football. um, But what happened was he basically was able to finagle a contract from the National Football League for the rights to film their uh, 1962 championship game. And this was before it was called the Super Bowl. And at the time, 
filming rights were were pretty inexpensive. It was not television rights. Television rights at the time were still relatively um, uh, inaccessible for anyone who didn't have ma- major kind of corporate backing. You know, it was very very expensive. But the film rights, um, which were sold separately, were a different deal. So he was able to get the bid hmm. because for the NFL, it was basically just another revenue stream. And then he made that documentary. So it wasn't necessarily that he was some huge football fan. He didn't have a passion for football. He was an athlete, but he didn't play football. He was a swimmer. Um, But it was the case that he just really loved making films and was starting to make films all over the Philadelphia area uh, with his um, independent film production company and wound up getting the rights to film the championship game. And that led into a specialization in football and his son, Steve, who I think, yeah, I think was to a certain degree, kind of quintessential boomer, um, kind of a suburban kid who was, who was sort of countercultural, but not too countercultural. Um, yeah, I wouldn't consider him to be yeah hippie necessarily or anything like that, but you know, he was interested in culture uh, but also interested in football. He loved football and he played football and he wound up um, going to Colorado college, um, you know, pursuing a liberal arts degree, uh, playing football there. Um, and then coming back to work with uh, the company that became NFL films. And he sort of became the creative visionary who developed the sort of iconic aesthetic and his dad was the the entrepreneur who recognized and found the opportunity. Sure. And so they sort of combined forces to um, develop what became NFL films when the league eventually decided to um, bring them in and make them a league uh, organ. You know, I, I wasn't going to say this, but you, you kind of got me thinking that it, it's interesting that while... NFL films aesthetic is self-serving. It is still creative. And and they could have easily just said, "Nah, we want an industrial film. We want meat and potatoes." So so that's interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, there there are lots of there are lots of ways to make propaganda. You know, you can just <laughs> you can just have a, you know, a photograph of a quarterback and say this guy's a hero or something like that. Um, but there was there was a creative approach and a creative sensibility, and it was to a certain extent unique. Um, it was unique, definitely in the context of of sports media at the time, which was just kind of becoming the sort of cultural behemoth. I mean, sports media, I mean, like uh, television and film. Um, obviously, sports media has been around for as long as media, but um, right, it was influenced by. Hollywood filmmaking rather than kind of the newsreel style that was kind of the uh, dominant aesthetic for um, visual sports media at the time. And it was also influenced by documentary filmmaking. Um, Steve Sable really loved this, this documentary series called victory at sea, uh, which was also kind of a propaganda sort of uh, series about the, the role of the Navy and um in the world war and he kind of adapted some of that to what they did with football to make it this sort of heroic 
um, and um, romantic endeavor um, that was somehow tantamount to, um, you know, warfare. And we know that football is really lends itself to these um, uh, martial uh, metaphors and themes. And, and they were building off and perpetuating that um, right. through building on, you know, things like Victory at Sea, war films, that kind of stuff. And the first film they made is Blair Motion Pictures for the NFL. They titled Pro Football's Longest Day, which was a, a um, lift of a title of a war film called The Longest Day. Um, so it's just right there from the start. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they were, they were, they thought of themselves as filmmakers and, and creative for sure. And that, that makes me think of two things. One I think is an important theme in your book, and that is the idea of documenting, dramatizing, and humanizing the subject matter really of professional football. And I think those are really good umbrella terms for the initial iteration of NFL films. As contrasted with what we'll talk about in a few minutes, which would be NFL media. And I guess the second point I want to make is that I always suggest to my students your book and Oriard's brand NFL. Because if for no other reason, you read his book for his coverage of the labor issues from the 1970s. But also... He has a small paragraph in there where he reveals that Roselle got the idea of overt displays of patriotism at NFL games from the guy who used to run the Orange Bowl back in the 1960s. So I always try to tell my students, yes, there is some connection there between war and football, but honestly, a lot of it is just an arbitrary choice in order to increase ticket sales. Yeah, it doesn't. We don't have to use that metaphor. We don't have to use that template there's nothing essential about football that makes it warlike there are similarities but there are also similarities between um pro football and you know a game of bingo or something like that you know and we can stress those similarities how we want to but it's been a deliberate project of the nfl to equate the their product that they're selling with some of these values that they think are going to help um, sell the game and glorify the game and expand their audience. Sure. And so that's been a part of what the NFL has been up to for a long time. And it really um, kicked in with Pete Rozelle when he took over as the commissioner and NFL films was working out of that project. It was kind of an extension of that project. And, and they were happy to perpetuate those myths and they still are. And the next point that I want to cover with you that I think is really great from about the middle section of your book is that you basically equate NFL films infrastructure, the processes that they went through as basically the Smithsonian for the league. And, and what is really interesting there, and I'm just putting this out here not for you because I'm sure you know it, but rather for our listeners, is that it's sort of like a Foucauldian thing, you know, like the power of the archive. And you really get into this when you talk about what was then uh, the new during the mid to late 1990s, which was their Sabre cataloging system. And you talk about the metadata and the idea of juncture. 
So I was hoping you could speak a little bit about that for our listeners and really then how you connected that to the idea that the system itself from that metadata actually actively supports the mythology. Sure. Um, that's a great question. And, and that was, for me, that was the most interesting part of the whole project was learning about this weird archive that they have, which is completely idiosyncratic. And I think that sometimes when we think of an archive, we think of kind of an objective system that classifies information, you know, obvi- obviously according to a date or topic mm-hmm, sure. or whatever. Um, but as we start to look critically at archives, we realize that they're also operating ideologically. Um, they're enmeshed in power relations. And you mentioned Foucault, and he talks about this in the Archaeology of Knowledge and some of his other work. Um, and, and the NFL archive is, is no different. In fact, it's, it's pretty deliberately interested in how it's organized because it's very much organized to classify data according to the values of NFL film, which are organized around an effort to glorify the league. Yes. And it's also organized around an established creative template that NFL films had developed um, over the course of its first couple of decades with um, the slow motion, the, um, uh, the, you know, like, like bloody hands or celebrities sitting in the stands, bloody hands, celebrities in the stands, footballs flying through the air, those kinds of things. And so what, what we're looking at here with this archive is something that's not just organizing information, but organizing information according to a pre-established set of values and a pre-established creative um, process and look Hmm. to perpetuate and continue this mythology that the NFL has established to glorify itself. And, you know, this is an amplification of archival practices that we see in other sites as well. They're just not often as deliberately um, uh, biased as, as the NFL archive. And I mean, I don't, at a certain point, it makes a lot of sense for it to operate exactly how it does, because this is a company. They make these really kinds of predictable, routinized sorts of documentaries. And so for their purposes, you know, they are able to streamline the process of production by, um, by organizing the, the footage in this way. Yes. But it's also doubling as a kind of, quote, history of the NFL. And if we think of this as a history of the NFL, it helps us to understand how specific and selective that history is and how the history of the NFL that they're creating is one that operates in this kind of romanticized um, and glorified sort of register that emphasizes these positive qualities and ignores these other qualities. So, you know, you're not going to see a category necessarily for people who are like in the concussion protocol or something like that. Right. Um, So that's the kind of stuff that, that might be left out. Um, So, so yeah, so that was a fascinating part and the saber system Another thing about the Saber system that I thought was really interesting was that they this is the the software that they developed specifically for 
um, the NFL archive to tag certain footage according to certain qualities. So like what player, what team, um, you know, uh, what happened. Time of game, that sort of thing. Time of the game, that kind of stuff. But they also have qualitative uh, um, markings like um, is it – they had a, a category that was like good, very good, or oh, God, I think was the, the most intense one for something that just kind of operates in this affective register, which I thought was pretty interesting because what is what does oh, God really mean? You know, I mean, it, it means that that's exciting. But what's exciting to me might not be exciting to you. But within the universe of NFL films, we have a pretty good idea of what they would consider to be exciting. So, again, it's filtering this ostensibly historical um, material through a very specific and corporate qualitative register. Not to dumb it down too much for the listeners, but I always like to think of it as it's like if they were a bunch of curators running a museum it would be like all of them going, we can't display this like that. I mean, this is how we've always displayed it. And this is what our patrons expect, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's a good way of explaining it. And, and you know, it's it's alive too. You know, they things change. Sure. And I think that they have, their values have, have shifted in certain ways, both aesthetically and, and ideologically. Um, they're core mission is still to celebrate the NFL and to try to um, engage fans. Um, but, but they're, they're also continually evolving within those parameters. So they, they add different things to the saber system as different things develop. For instance, they had a, there's a category for like the green dot on the quarterback or the middle linebackers helmet. And that wasn't something that was always there. But they added it as that became something that they were um, representing. And increasingly, they would have people mic'd up. Um, and a lot of times those were the folks with the, the helmets because they were the ones who were doing the most talking with um, uh, coaches and whatnot. And this is a somewhat natural segue to my last big point, which is subdivided. But we had for decades the Sables NFL Films. But right now, if you talk to a young fan, they don't really think about NFL films. Rather, they think about NFL media, NFL network. And you get into this toward the end of the book. And I think the natural knee-jerk reaction is to say something like, NFL films was one thing, and NFL media is totally different. And they never sort of like intermesh. But that would probably be a bit of a fallacy, yes? Um, so NFL films has been around since the the sixties and 1965 was when it was purchased by the NFL and when it became NFL films and when it was operating early on, primarily what it did was it created these syndicated TV shows that were, um, shown on television at different hours during the football season. A lot of times late at night. They were really inexpensive because they were promotion and the NFL wanted them to run. Yes. And this is one of the only places where you could see sports, non-live sports material um, outside of the nightly news at the time um, and live broadcasts. And so it's predating kind of the explosion of sports television 
And that's most commonly associated with ESPN, which started in 1979. Um, now, when ESPN starts, we start to see a proliferation of sports on television at all hours of the, of the day and night. And the NFL films material starts to become less relevant. In the 60s and early 70s, people were actually watching some of the highlight programs to get news about what was happening in the NFL. Maybe news that they didn't see in the local paper or just kind of an expansion on on some of the box scores, um, especially the stuff that was kind of out of out of their particular market. So if you're in L.A. and you want to know how the Giants, New York Giants did, um, you can get a three minute highlight reel. But as as ESPN and other sports television programs develop, the NFL films programs function as as news became less relevant people wanted more immediate information hmm. and so um eventually the nfl started to create its own uh media outlet that was producing quote news right it was you know it was it was news that was uh suitable for the nfl um and the nfl films's role within that became um less prominent, right? The, the league started to focus more on kind of up to the minute news or up to the date news. And NFL films was sort of doing these weekly programs that were basically already quasi obsolete by the time they aired, you know, three days right. later, because we were getting highlights the evening, Sunday evening, right? Now, of course, with social media, we get highlights immediately. Um, and so NFL media started to do this more like ESPN inspired news coverage just of the NFL and every, you know, major sports organization has their equivalent now. Um, and NFL films place within the NFL became a little bit less prominent and they started to kind of focus more on the history of the league and on kind of celebrating that history. So, um, we started to get programs that were specializing more in in the past and the kind of um, nostalgia related to the NFL. And um, that's kind of become the place of NFL films within NFL media as this kind of like boutique sort of nostalgic wing within that. But then they also do a lot of work to support NFL media and some of the material that's quote done by NFL films doesn't really look like NFL films um, and less and less they're using actual film stock, you know, that kind of stuff. Sure. And, and what I think is interesting is, and again, I'm saying this for younger listeners is that there was such a conscious effort on the part of NFL films to add a significance to the sport through the sheen of archive of documentation, of film grain, and of larger-than-life figures. So for someone like myself who grew up in that aesthetic, it, it's kind of hilarious to me to now see it become so disposable, or I guess so ephemeral, if you will, and so much like you write in the book, it's really closer now to reality television and spectacle and sensation. And, and the one thing I want to say that I think is ironic is that as they make those choices to attract the younger demographic, I still think that younger demographic is going to eventually grow up or mature and will want to hold on to tradition, to lean into those conservative urges anyway. 
So, I don't know, it's kind of funny to me that they throw out the NFL film's aesthetic when they're probably going to just come back around to it anyway. Or, you know, at least that's true for some of the viewers. But honestly, that's a random thought. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess we'll see, you know. Um, I think NFL films has a place, and I think people do enjoy their uh, practices. I think that it's become kind of more of a nostalgic thing for people who have grown up with NFL films as kind of a marker of what football used to be. Um, But I also think that um, there's something kind of interesting about that aesthetic. And that aesthetic was also driven by market concerns when it was developed, right? This was sure it was developed in the sixties and seventies alongside films that were being produced at that time. And that was kind of the popular register of, of commercial entertainment media that they were building on, you know, Sable sites like the Magnificent Seven as a big influence and stuff like that. And, and now NFL media is building on a far faster paced kind of um, aesthetic. And that matches what people are, are more familiar with uh, on other mainstream um, sports media um, or from other mainstream sports media entities. And so it's not actually too terribly dissimilar from the spirit of what NFL films was doing in the 60s and 70s, hmm. but it looks a lot differently. And I don't think it looks as good or as interesting. I just really like film and I love the 70s era, the texture of the film. Um, but that's be- partly because I I was like a kid in the 80s and I would watch the programs on ESPN and that's how I was introduced to football and, and it made me want to play football. And I, you know, I wound up playing football and thinking about football in those terms uh, when I was kind of like daydreaming <laughs> about, you know, trying to do well. And, and so it's wrapped up with kind of the generation I'm from. And I don't necessarily know if, if younger folks today crave that or, or even care, <laughs> which is fine. We'll save a discussion about the role fathers and sons play within NFL fandom for another time. Since honestly, that's, that's a whole topic in and of itself. But I will say to make a last point that goes beyond what you talked about in your book is that I thought one of the best productions of NFL films in the last few years was uh, something called full color football, which was their history of the AFL. Though honestly, I thought it was a bit ironic that the NFL was the one telling the history of the league that had basically forced them into merger because back then the AFL was actually smartly buoyed by TV money uh, that they they all collectively shared in. Well, well, and the, one of the clever things about that series is that they were basically saying that this was always already the NFL, right? And they were suggesting that the history of the AFL is basically just wrapped up in the history of the NFL, and the NFL ultimately is what gives meaning to this kind of plucky upstart, right? Sure. Um, the story of the AFL is dramatic only because it wound up getting into the big leagues. And and so in a way, it's just kind of another way to celebrate the NFL as this, as this uh, sort of cultural behemoth. But yeah, that was an interesting program and they've, they've done a lot of stuff. I mean, they've done a lot of different material. A lot of it is kind of 
you know, the stuff that's recognizable as NFL films tends to be steeped in nostalgia. Um, they do the America's Game series. They do a football life. Um, you know, those things that are about the past. Right. Um, and it's become kind of this almost boutique sort of aesthetic within NFL media, almost to the same degree as how ESPN films operates within ESPN. Uh, they're kind of retroactively becoming this this sort of boutique organ within a large media company, um, even though they predated that media company that they're now um, a part of. But yeah, to kind of set it off as this sort of um, featured uh, kind of production that we should maybe take a minute and, and absorb rather than just kind of um, letting it wash over us to get the, the essential information or the gossip or the scores. Yeah, and I think it's that reality TV focus is very, very prominent. You know, the immediacy of the gossip, the off the field and off season storylines, etc. Mm-hmm. And they do hard knocks, which doesn't really look like an NFL films program. I mean, they have some of the slow motion, they have kind of a narration and everything like that. But, you know, it looks like a, it looks like a big budget reality TV show, which is basically what it is. It looks like a well-made reality TV show. Well, in another new episode from this season of the podcast, We actually do talk about sports documentaries, and there's actually a tangential connection there to you uh, since I spoke with Brandon Bueller, who recently contributed to a volume you edited, and and honestly, I think between the both of us, uh, we must have mentioned your name, Travis, about 5,000 times, uh, which is basically a a way to say that we both really enjoy your work. Well, I appreciate that. Um, But looking at the time... Uh, I don't want to waste any more of your time. So I guess I'll just ask, is there anything uh, you'd like to plug or make listeners aware of? Um, Well, my most recent book is called The Boxing Film, A Cultural and Transmedia History. And that was published last fall by Rutgers University Press. It kind of, the publicity for it kind of got um, sides, you know, pushed aside for, for far more important things going on on planet earth um but yeah that's that's around and available and i had a i had a fun time writing that one um so yeah that's this you know and nfl films the nfl films book was kind of the the starting point and i started noticing things and issues that um hadn't really been discussed in in academia and kind of spawned these other book projects and Um, so it's been, it was important for me in that regard too, as well as just being an interesting topic to look at, it kind of set me off on this path of, of doing kind of historically grounded and critical cultural work on sports media in the United States. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Take care of yourself. Again, we're super appreciative to Travis for sitting down with us. If you check out the episodes page on www.tvhistorypod.com, 
You'll see links to Travis's work, including his new boxing book, The Boxing Film, A Cultural and Transmedia History from Rutgers University Press. You can also always, of course, just look for Travis Vogan, uh, V-O-G-A-N, online via his University of Iowa faculty page. Well, I guess that's it for, for now, but I do want to remind you that, again, new episodes are still available, as always, for free uh, in this podcast feed. The next episode will be coming out in two weeks from now. But if you want to have access to both new bonus episodes as well as the 87-episode archive, uh, you will have to sign up as a, as a Patreon supporter. And again, we just are hoping to use those funds to help support and keep the podcast running so that we can keep doing fun and interesting episodes for you. And yeah, obviously, anything you can give, we're not looking for huge donations, uh, would be much appreciative. So, if you're still with me at the end here, I do appreciate that as well. And we'll see you in two weeks for the next regular episode. Uh, Patreon subscribers, you will get a new bonus episode sooner than that, or basically next week. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. I'm Jonathan Bollinger. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1926.